Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for his life, death, and resurrection for us, and thank you for what that means for us and for those around us. Please strengthen us to to have hope in Christ and to proclaim him to this world. And please fill us with the Holy Spirit now as we look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing this series, walking through the book of First Peter. It's entitled Living Hope, our sermon series is. Because of what Jesus Christ did for us in his death and resurrection, we can have great hope. Are you living in that hope? Do you walk around with a confident assurance that God will take care of everything? We can have that. We can actually walk around this life with great hope. Now, in this sermon series, in the last few weeks, we've addressed some very practical issues that we face in daily life. In today's passage, 1 Peter 3, 18-22, we're going to change gears a little, and we're going to focus on some theology. The theologian Robert Mounts says this passage is widely recognized as perhaps the most difficult to understand in all the New Testament. In a study note in my Bible, it says there are at least 18 major theories to explain the meaning of this passage. So how should we view a passage like this? Should we just skip over it? Or or gloss over it and barely touch it? Or, to the other extreme, should we get into theological debate about it? Well, we are going to look pretty closely at this passage today, but let me give you two quick guidelines for our discussion today. First, I often find it so helpful to apply this theological guideline. Use the clear verses in the context to help you understand the verses that aren't as clear. Let me repeat that because I think it's important. When we have a difficult verse, what we want to do is we want to use the clear verses in the context to help us understand the verses that aren't as clear. And then the second guideline here is that Peter himself, the author of this passage, recognizes that some passages of Scripture are harder to understand than others. As he was talking about the Apostle Paul's writings, Peter said that, that some are hard to understand. So we should have some humility, actually a fair amount of humility, as we approach Scripture, recognizing that some some things might just not be as clear as we want them to be. Having said that, I want to read our passage for today. Again, it's 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. It says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So in my sermon today, I want to ask and hopefully answer three questions. The first two of my questions have to do with the theological intricacies of this passage. I hope that we can come to some understanding of them, although I acknowledge that I may not have these questions all figured out. And then in my third question, I want to do something that I think will be a little more important as we talk about Peter's intent in writing this passage. This will hopefully be very relevant to us today. Allow me to use an illustration to help you understand where we're going today. In these first two theological questions, we're going to get out a a microscope kind of figuratively speaking, to look at some of the finer theological points. And then in my third question, we're going to step back and take a look at the larger picture. 
So again, two questions about theology, and then a third question about how to understand the passage in general. So my first question today is, what does it mean that Jesus, through the Spirit, preached to the spirits in prison? What does it mean that Jesus, through the Spirit, preached to the spirits in prison? In verse 20, it's clear that these spirits were beings who were disobedient during the time Noah was building the ark. But there's some theological debate surrounding whether these were human or demonic spirits. When exactly Jesus preached to them? Did he preach to them a long time ago or sometime around his death and resurrection? And then also there's debates about whether he was preaching a message of repentance or a message of condemnation. Now, I'm not going to walk through all the possible details, all the possible options. If you're interested in doing so, Wayne Grudem has a lengthy section at the end of his commentary on 1 Peter. I found it very interesting, and I think he makes a very solid case. I agree with his conclusion. So here's the conclusion he comes to. He says that Christ was preaching through Noah when the ark was being built, and that he was preaching to human beings who were alive during Noah's day but are now spirits in prison. That is hell. So by the time Peter's writing, Peter can call them spirits in prison, but back when the Spirit of Christ was preaching to them, they were alive during the days of Noah. So if this view is right, what it means is that somehow Jesus Christ, through Noah, was preaching a message of repentance to disobedient people while Noah was building the ark. Now, it might seem strange to us to say that Jesus in the Spirit was preaching through Noah, but that's actually very similar langu language to what we saw already in 1 Peter 1.11, where we saw that the Spirit of Christ was pointing things out to Old Testament prophets, pointing ahead to the sufferings of Christ. So again, if this view is right, there was a message from Jesus through the Spirit, and also through Noah, that was intended to help the wicked people of Noah's day see their need for repentance. It says in our passage that God waited patiently in those days. Now I love this about God. His patience is meant to lead us to repentance. Peter says of God in 2 Peter 3, 9b, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, we could think of it this way. We have all sinned. We all need God's message of repentance. In his mercy, God gives us this message, gives us this opportunity for us to turn from our sin and to trust in him. Now, again, this is a difficult passage to understand. I could be wrong in my understanding of this first question we looked at, but I think it makes sense as we think about the passage as a whole, and we'll get there in in point three today. But for now, let's move on to our second theological question. What does it mean that baptism saves? What does it mean that baptism saves? As Peter continues on in this Noah story, he talks about how only eight people, Noah and his family, were saved through the water. Then he says in verse 21 that the water of the flood now represents for us baptism that saves. So in what sense does Peter say that baptism saves, and how does that relate to the Noah story? There's actually another hotly debated theological question within this question around the precise meaning of the word translated as pledge or appeal. Let's tackle that one first. So we're looking at the word pledge or appeal here in verse 21. Is this talking about a request we make for God to make us holy, or is it talking about a commitment we make to live holy lives? This is the only place in the New Testament where we find this noun appeal, although the verbal form of this word shows up fairly often, meaning to ask a question. 
And since we're talking about salvation in this passage, I think it makes more sense to talk about asking God for this cleansing. So in that sense, you could talk about how water cleanses our skin, but we know that kind of outward cleansing doesn't cleanse the soul. So the physical act of being baptized isn't what saves us. It's the inward reality behind it, which baptism represents. That's what saves us. Most theologians seem to take this approach to this question that water baptism is then a symbol of new life, and I certainly agree with that. Although I think there is a little bit more to the story than, than just the symbolic nature of water baptism. Let me explain. Water baptism can stand as a wonderful word picture for our salvation. Think about a person being dunked under the water. That act of going in the water can remind us of how we died to sin and died with Christ. So the water, in that sense, could represent a grave. And then, as the person comes up out of the water, that can serve as a picture of new life with Christ. So as Christ died and was raised again, so too can we die to sin and live a new life with Christ. When we trusted in Christ, that spiritual reality happened within us, and then water baptism stands as a symbol of it. So water baptism at least serves as a symbol for this new life that's being talked about. But I think that there's even more going on here in our passage. Let me ask the question this way. What kind of baptism saves us? I think Peter is being very clear here when he says that it's not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not just going into water that saves you. I think Peter is talking about what God does for us the moment we trust in Christ. And let me go to Titus 3, 5 through 6 on this point. These are tremendously powerful and very clear verses about God cleansing us. It says, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now, did you catch all three members of the Trinity at work there? And did you notice the language of washing, of rebirth, and renewal? Let me reread those verses. I want you to listen for those things. He, that's God, saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. That reminds me, thinking about baptism in that sense, it reminds me of what John the Baptist said Jesus would do. Do you remember that one? In Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So you see, there's a washing that only God can give. It's not the physical washing you received when you were water baptized. It's the cleansing from sin that happens when we receive Christ. Let me say it this way. The baptism that now saves us isn't when water washes dirt off of our skin, but as God makes us new through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. And this is something that we are to ask for, to request. Although, let me say this too. When we ask for that washing from God, we should also commit to walking in holiness in the new life that he gives us. So this request should also be a commitment in that sense. I think that's why some translations use words like pledge or promise. But again, let's be very clear. We're not saved because we make a promise to God. We're saved because of what Jesus did for us in his life, death, and resurrection. And we access that grace, that salvation, through faith. We need a washing that only God can provide. I could baptize you in water today, but only God can save you. 
So I think what's happening in this section of our passage today is that water baptism stands as a symbol of salvation. It says clearly in our passage today that this salvation comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that leads me to ask you two applications in response. Two questions of application and response. So first and most importantly, have you received Jesus as Savior and Lord? That's how our salvation happens. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Then after three days, he was raised to life again, showing his victory over sin and death. We all sinned. We all need to be rescued from death. It's only through Jesus that we receive that forgiveness. So have you called on Jesus as your Savior? Have you called on Jesus as your Lord? As Savior, he will forgive you for your sins. And as Lord, he will lead you into new life. Now, if you haven't done that, if you, if you have not yet called out to Jesus as Savior and Lord, I think what this passage tells us is that you're like one of the disobedient people in Noah's day, just waiting to get destroyed by the flood. But remember, God sent a preacher to urge the people to repent, and that's what I'm urging you to do today if you haven't yet. Repent. Turn from your sins. Call on Jesus as Savior and Lord, and you will be saved. And then my second application question in the second point of my sermon today is this. Have you been water baptized? Water baptism is a powerful symbol of what God has done to rescue us. I personally think that this picture makes the most sense when it comes after we have received Christ. It's a picture then of people who have given their life to Jesus, then showing that reality by going down into the water uh, as, a, as a testimony of their faith. That's why I'm not a big fan of infant baptism. I think our water baptism after we've received Christ actually clearly proclaims the gospel as we proclaim Jesus as Savior and Lord. We give testimony to his saving work in our lives. So you can picture somebody going down to the water, and maybe as they go down to the water, they tell this story of how they came to know Jesus as Savior and Lord, and then they go down into the water getting baptized as a as a word picture of how they have been brought from death to life. And then rising up out of the water, it's again that word picture of, of coming into that new life that Jesus has for us. So have you been baptized in water yet? If not, I'd love to talk with you about that. Okay, what we've done so far today is to look at these two theological questions about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison and about how the floodwaters symbolize baptism that saves. It's kind of like we've taken out a microscope to look at some finer points of theology. But now I want to step back and look at the bigger picture. Have you ever played that game where someone, where, where someone shows you part of a picture that's been magnified multiple times and you have to guess what it is? So you're just looking at a tiny little part of the picture that's been magnified. And, and for example, maybe you're looking at a picture that has a bunch of fibers running through it and you don't know what it is until you zoom out and look at the bigger picture and you see, oh, it's a, it's a carpet square or something like that. It really helps us to back up and look at the bigger picture sometimes, and especially so when we're looking at difficult theological questions. So my third question today is, why does Peter even mention this story about Noah and the flood? Why does Peter even mention this story about Noah and the flood? We've looked at some of the finer theological points, but now we want to ask the question, what's he doing in this passage? And I think the answer has to do with the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. 
And by the way, let me be very clear here and say that I believe that the flood of Noah's day really happened. I believe it was worldwide. I believe it does a better job of explaining the contours of, of the earth better than the modern explanation of millions of years of erosion. I have lots of reasons for saying that, but that's a topic for a different day. For today, I want to analyze why Peter would even bring up this story about Noah. Let's look at some of the context of the Noah story. This story, by the way, is in Genesis 6 through 8. I just want to highlight a few verses from Genesis 6 about why it happened. So Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Six verses later it says, The earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. So God made this world to be a very good place. Remember, after he created Adam and Eve in paradise, he said it was all very good. But then sin came into the world, and apparently by the time Genesis 6 rolls around, sin was just everywhere, and people were sinning all the time, and it was not very good. But it also says in verse 8 that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And in verse 9 that Noah was righteous and blameless and that he walked with God. So God told Noah that he was going to destroy the people of the earth as well as the earth itself. But God wanted to rescue Noah, so he commanded Noah to build an ark that would keep him and his family safe. Now you can imagine how Noah must have been mocked. It took a long time to build the ark. You can picture people ridiculing him for building this huge boat. But remember, Noah was a righteous man. Now, we're not suggesting that he was a perfect man on his own, but in the New Testament, in 2 Peter 2.5, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. Now, that helps me put the puzzle together a little bit. Remember, we mentioned earlier that Jesus, through the Spirit, preached through Noah. Noah lived in wicked days, yet he walked with God and proclaimed God's message of repentance to disobedient people. Noah knew that judgment was coming, so he did two things. First, he trusted in God's plan. He built the ark, which we now know saved him and his family. And as the ark saved them, similarly, we can be saved through trusting in God's plan of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then second, Noah preached God's message to those around him. Now again, we're trying to get the big picture here. And doesn't this all start to make perfect sense now, both to Peter's original audience and in our day? In Peter's day, believers in Jesus faced persecution. That's a major theme of the letter here. The, the people of the world around them were living according to wicked ways, yet Peter urged believers, even in the midst of suffering, to live holy lives and to proclaim the hope we have of salvation through Jesus Christ. And it's eerily similar in our day, although in America maybe we don't face persecution like that, although certainly our brothers and sisters across the world are facing some of that kind of persecution. But yet, even for us in America, we live in a world in which we see wickedness around us every day. We are supposed to live holy lives here, and we are supposed to proclaim the message of Jesus to those around us. We might be ridiculed for both of those things, just like Noah was. He was ridiculed probably both for his righteous lifestyle and for his message. But God is patient with the wicked people of this world. And let's remember that that was actually God's mercy to us, too. We were all wicked sinners, but in his love and mercy, God sent Jesus for us, and he sent people into our lives to tell us about Jesus. Who was it that told you about Jesus? 
Think of, I want you to stop and think about that for a moment right now. Every one of us had picked the wrong path. God sent somebody into our lives to tell us about Jesus. Who was that for you? And I want you now to look back in your life and to recognize that that was God's mercy to send a person to proclaim the message of Jesus to you. And as we continue on that train of thought, when it says in verse 18 that Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, we should be so grateful for that message. We had a sin penalty hanging over our heads, and Jesus paid it. We were unrighteous. Jesus was righteous. And like I said last Sunday, we get clothed with his righteousness as we trust in him. So we have this wonderful message about Jesus. It was brought to us. So we should now be people who recognize our need to submit to Jesus. In verse 22, it talks about how even angels, authorities, and powers are in submission to Jesus right now as Jesus is at the right hand of God. That's where Jesus went after he was crucified and risen from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. And and these powers are in submission to him. That word submit has been an important word in 1 Peter. It means to arrange or to order under. So we can think of it this way. Jesus is rightfully in charge of this world and of our lives. We should submit to him. We should trust in him as Savior and Lord. We should seek to live holy lives following the pattern of Christ. And as part of that, we are to proclaim Jesus to the people of this world around us, even if they ridicule us. Remember, God was patient with us. He's also patient with those around us. So as I finish up this third point, I just want to make it very clear what I think this passage is telling us to do. Like Noah, we are to live righteous lives in a wicked world, and we are to proclaim God's message of repentance because judgment is coming. See those two things? We're to live rightly, and we're to proclaim the message of repentance because judgment is coming. God has already sent Jesus to pay for our sins. His offer of salvation is for anyone who would believe. So we are to trust in Jesus and we are to proclaim Jesus. We are to live different lives than the people of the world around us because we have living hope. We have living hope. We trust that God has wonderful things in store for us in eternity. So we don't have to live for the pleasures of this world. We don't have to fear death. We should live for God and we should bring his message to others. So are you living a righteous life? Noah stood out in his day as one who lived rightly. Are you pursuing holiness? Are you fleeing from sin? Or are you following the pattern of this world? Let's constantly be talking to God about our lives and how we should turn from sin and pursue righteousness. And then also, are you proclaiming God's message to those around you? What open doors might God be giving you to proclaim his gospel message? I pray that we will be people who join with God as he makes the gospel of Jesus Christ known. God likes to use us in that process. And it's such a privilege, actually, for us. It's, it's really quite a privilege for us to join in that amazingly important work of bringing the gospel to other people that they might know Jesus as Savior and Lord. So who are the people around you who need to hear the gospel? Pray for them. Ask God to open doors. And when you see an open door, make the most of that opportunity. Um, I, I, I have this strategy 
It comes from Colossians 4, 2 through 6, and I just love on this topic, uh, the strategy I just mentioned of we pray to God, we ask him to open doors, and when we see those doors, we are to make the most of every opportunity. We trust that God will give us the words to say, and then we say them at the right time. And, and one of the strategies I like to encourage people to do along with that is to make a list of people to pray for. I've, I've said this many times in the past, and I'll say it again. Maybe it's time for you, again, to make a list of people that you want to pray for, people that you want God to open a door for so that the gospel message can go to them, so that you can do your part in sharing with them. Who are those people in your life right now that, that you want to ask God to open a door for? Okay, so what we are to do, kind of following this pattern of Noah, is that we are to live righteous lives and we are to proclaim the message of Jesus. And then let me conclude my sermon by saying this. Jesus Christ is our only hope for salvation. Jesus Christ is our only hope for salvation. In 1 Peter 1.3 it says that we have been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is our only hope of being saved. Again, I think of how the Noah story symbolizes this so well. Noah's only hope to make it through the flood was to trust in God's plan and build the ark. Similarly, our only hope of salvation is to trust in God's plan and to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. In that sense, you could perhaps say that Jesus is like the ark. We are to come to him and we are to invite others to come to him. What chance did Noah have outside of the ark? None. Maybe he was a good swimmer, but not that good. What chance do we have outside of Jesus Christ? What chance do our neighbors have outside of Jesus Christ? None. So we should tell them about the offer of life. We should tell them about the living hope we have in Christ. And as we do so, let's live holy lives, walking rightly with God as we wait for what we hope for. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we're so grateful for this living hope we have. We're so grateful for this rescue that we have. Like Noah and his family were saved, we can be saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Thank you, God, for that wonderful message. Thank you, Jesus, for offering your life on the cross for us and, and for being raised again from the dead and for now sitting in power and in glory. Thank you, God, also for sending people into our lives to, to tell us the gospel and to show us what a holy life looks like. And now, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us to live holy lives and to proclaim your gospel. So, Lord, in regard to holiness, help us to turn from sin. Help us to walk rightly with you. Please fill us with the Holy Spirit that we may honor you with the way that we live in a wicked world. Help us not to follow the pattern of this world, but to follow you in your ways. And then, Lord, in regard to proclaiming the message of Jesus, we pray that you would open doors. Lord, it is not our work to save people. It is your work. We pray that you would open doors that you would help us to see those open doors and that we would make the most of every opportunity, that we would say the right words at the right time, that we would proclaim your truth with grace, that others might know the saving power of Jesus Christ and of your gospel message. Lord, would you please use us, give us the privilege of helping others come to know Christ. Help us to point them to Jesus. Lord, we lift us all up to you again thanking you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, and we pray that others would, would gain that hope as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.